Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. Hello everyone. It's, sorry, it's just me. It's never Oz. I mean, I think he's done one, but yeah, you're stuck with me again. Shouldn't joke, need a bit more of a somber tone for this one. So for this episode, we decided to do something important. If you listened to last week's episode, the top end of it was me talking about the universe almost being farcical in putting me on the front of a of a sustainability report after moaning about the lack of sustainability in the industry. As I said then, very important because it's only for acknowledging that these things need to change that change can actually happen so great it was more just the timing of it and we've been trying to organize this one for quite a while because when i go off about the industry it's not even for me i'm i'm i know i'm in a great position from the outside it looks like i'm doing amazingly well which i have to keep reminding myself that i am but i know that there's people who might not have had the opportunities via schemes or film school or whatever it is, who are out there, who are doing the work, they're doing the right things, but they're getting absolutely no rewards from it. That's where this podcast came from. That's where my frustration exists. I could keep going off myself, but I'm not going to. I I think we're going to do something different at the top of this episode. And we did plan to have a whole montage of people saying their difficulties with the industry and money and all these sorts of things. But I got one message and it felt very very poignant not just for me um i'm going to keep them anonymous but from again from the outside you would think that they're doing amazingly well so yeah this is from one of our listeners i am in my 13th year of pursuing a career in this industry as a filmmaker i've had extraordinary lows which have included being kicked out of home homelessness working multiple jobs simultaneously but i've also had extraordinary highs of having work produced commissions and winning awards at some of the world's most notable film festivals what one would have hoped would be life-changing and affirming breakthroughs. Yet in my 13th year, still I am not sustainable. In fact, it is the year where I have earned the least amount of money my entire life. We're talking about very low four digits. I don't know how I've survived either. I'm overlooked for opportunities with the given reason of inexperience. Some, many even, have the lofty, shiny version of these dreams. I, for sure, am one of those. But from the very start, I've always said that the dream is to simply make a living off of this and all else is a bonus. That is the bare minimum and it astonishes me that I still haven't attained it. When you're from a particular background as I am, doing it for the art is almost impossible. Currently, I am financially in the gutter and I am mentally too and the only thing that prevents me from quitting isn't because of my love and belief in myself. It's because having completely and unequivocally thrown my all at this, I don't actually know what else I would or could do. If I could figure out something else to do that would offer me some peace, stability, not be soul-destroying, and make these 13 years of sacrifice, the lack of progress in other areas of my life, be it holidays, relationships and progress, which all suffers in the name of art, I would do it in a heartbeat. So I know that listener isn't the only one. It's not a million miles from the experience I'm going through. And also there are many other sorts of experiences which people are going through, whether it be various crew roles. And we know there's there's lots of other stuff which people experience within the industry who who might be working. It could be it it could be bullying, it could be harassment, it it could be around their disability and things like that. So we've decided to bring on the film and TV charity 
so that you know what they do, you know they exist, you know where to go for help, you know there's a support line. All of the details will be in the description of the episode, which you can dig out. And yeah, hopefully it helps. Okay, welcome back everyone. And today on the Director's Take podcast, we've got a really interesting discussion that we're going to have, an interesting topic. One of the most important, most popular questions that we get asked is we know that a lot of people out there are struggling with the industry, uh, which is very taxing on you know, everyone's mental health. And we know a, a lot of our audience might be struggling for various reasons. So we thought it was important to let them know that the film TV charity exists and it is a place to go. So we have two people from the film and TV charity with us today. So welcome to the Director's Tape podcast, Justine Walton and Lucy Talent. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining. So to kick things off, you know, when we were doing research, we saw that next year's going to be film and TV charity's 100th birthday. Been going for a hundred years, way back in nineteen twenty-four is when it started as the cinemat- c- cinematograph. No, cinematograph. How do you say it, Marcus? Got it. In the- cinematograph benevolent fund. Is that right? Maybe. Yeah, benevolent fund. Yeah. And you've done lots of excellent work since then, and are now called the film and TV charity. So, firstly, we'd love to know who you are as an entity and what is it that you both do. Sure. Shall I take that one? Yeah. To see go ahead. Who we are. So, um, well done for spotting that we're we're nearly a hundred. And next year will be our centenary year. So you're right. We started life as a, as a benevolent fund, which basically means that we were giving people financial aid. So we were making grants, supporting people, often people who were towards the end of their careers. The charity has been supported by all the great and the good. If you look through our list of vice patrons on the website, all the great and the good of cinema and film over the last hundred years. The, the Queen was our patron. We're just waiting to find out from the palace who our next patron's going to be. So... Um, that are, you know, our roots are as a benevolent fund supporting people financially, but we've actually had a big change in quite a short space of time. And as as you noted, we've 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 got into other kinds of work. So since 2018, when we launched our support line, we've been trying to make our support offer a bit more holistic because mm. you know money absolutely helps, especially if you're in difficult times and you're freelance but it doesn't answer everything. And we were realizing that there were more and more issues that we could potentially help with. So we wanted to make a more kind of holistic offer and that's been developing ever since. So what we can do now, I guess I'd sum it up to say is we do two things. We support individuals on a one-to-one basis and we support them over different issues. So we could talk about that in more detail, but the different types of advice and support and the way that that works. Um, but we're also here to kind of create change on a strategic level because we're here to sort of offer people support not that they rely on us but to help them stay in the industry we want the industry to thrive we want people to have good work we want people to be able to come to us when they're in difficulty to help them stay in the industry and help them get on um and to have a sort of transformative effect but we also want to create the conditions for challenge because nothing you know nothing's ever you don't we don't want people to have to keep coming to us Mm. and just purely by doing our research and insights, we can identify some of the longer term structural problems in the industry and we can shine a light on them and we can help people try and address them. We've got a few interventions that we could talk about as well that are on a more kind of industry-wide level rather than a one-to-one level. But that's very broadly what we do. So I should also introduce myself and say, so I'm Lucy Talon and I am the mental health lead at the charity. So I do work on developing our resources and services, on research, 
but I also do some strategic work on kind of campaigning and um, helping advocate for the issues that affect everybody in the long term. And I'm Justine Walton. I am the bullying and harassment advisor for the film and TV charity. So I do one-to-one work with people who are looking for help with situations of being bullied, harassed or discriminated against in the industry. Um, It's a one-to-one service. It's completely confidential. People can check in and make an appointment via the website and they can speak to me about any any aspect of those issues that they're dealing with and at whatever stage they might be with dealing with um, something that pertains to that. So it could be people who are just worried about a situation potentially escalating, wondering what support is out there, wondering whether they want to take it further or how they want to handle it. And I can refer people on for um, legal advice and counselling and psychotherapy, which are which are two of the important other services that we offer. It's oh, incredible. And so when, when people do approach you, what does that look like typically? And what are the most sorts of common situations which you guys deal with and how do you aim to help? So that's quite a complicated question because obviously we get contacted by a really massive number of people with a whole range of issues and also you know with we're really strict about confidentiality so we would never actually talk about a single situation that involved an individual that would identify them in any way so i mean i guess there's two things really one is kind of highlighting the importance of the research that we do so we know a lot about the state of the industry and the conditions of the industry and the things sort of broader issues that people are facing through our looking glass research which is a, a it's a piece of massive piece of research that we do every two years and it's going to provide us with a really long-term rich longitudinal overview of the industry and that tells us about people's finances about their mental health about the working conditions that really helps us identify the issues where people are most vulnerable. So we, we we know a lot about the industry from our research, but in terms of the people that are calling us, we have people call our support line, um, and that can just be for a listening ear. That can just be somebody who's having a bad day and really just wants to reach out to somebody and, and have a empathetic conversation with somebody um, to, to sort of be heard. From from there, we can set people up. If there are specific issues they're dealing with around money, which um, is very, very common at the moment, our grant applications have gone up by 800%. So that gives you an wow. indicator of how many people are struggling. So yeah, you can call the support line. Um, you can have in the moment support. From there, you can be referred to advice about money, advice about a potential legal situation, be referred for six sessions of counselling. And then people also get in touch via email. I can't even begin to tell you how many different sorts of things people are, are describing. Sometimes people are asking for information around training or about sort of bursaries and signposting. It's what Lucy said, really. You know, we, we talk to people at every stage of their career. So, you know, you name it. We will we will do our we will do our best to help. We're really there for people behind the scenes who work in production, and you know that can be a really blurred area these days. You know, some pe- people are really multi-skilled. Yeah. People work behind the scenes in front of the camera. People produce not only in what we think of as sort of traditional film or television, but more in sort of branded content and other platforms, digital platforms. So. We, we, we're very inclusive, our sort of expertise is in helping people behind the camera. Yeah, and um, we should say it's, we're a UK charity, so it's for people working in the UK or for sometimes people, British people in the industry working abroad. 
And although probably most of our calls are, as Justine said, for people in production, it is right through the value chain. So it's a production and development, it's broad, people working broadcasting, a distribution, exhibition, cinema. And, and it makes you realize there are so many different types of skills and different types of people who are attached to our business. You know, the amazing people who are work on sets who are horticulturalists or, you know, in the art department or people with skills from all walks of life. And I think particularly at the moment, what we're finding is that, you know, that's just been said, we're very inclusive and people have, have had to kind of develop portfolio careers. So they do a bit of this, they do a bit of that. And so we have a, it, it's a very, very broad range of people, isn't it? I was kind of thinking about questions and stuff earlier. And um, yeah, part of what I was thinking about was um, uh, how film sets, it really is just a massive microcosm of society. Like, and everyone's sort of thrown together in this weird class system. There could be someone at the very bottom of the rung, like in terms of their career, like where they are at the beginning of their career, working alongside multi-millionaires. And the, <laughs> the, the, the power imbalances are insane. And whether they're aware, whether the people at the top are aware of it or not, like, the words that they hold have a lot of power um, and can really adversely affect someone's mental health. I find it really, really sort of interesting. And I think from what I've seen is that when you're in with productions, the contracts almost dictate that there's not much of a proper grievance procedure in place for when those sorts of imbalances rear their heads. So I guess that's where you guys can sort of come in and with it being confidential, people can reach out and speak to you and get advice on these sorts of things because it's it's a lot easier to quell a smaller voice, isn't it? I think that's absolutely true. Everything you've said about, you know, these these sort of microcosmic universes, but they're very sort of closed. They're kind of quite hidden and invisible, aren't they? While they're happening, mm. um, they're complex, they're fast paced. You know, you've got a lot of people trying to do a, a lot of different kinds, there's a lot of moving parts and, you know, power is writ large through those systems and and yes it's quite often people who don't feel they've got as much of a voice or as a, a voice that is as impactful or will be listened to as much that struggles so um it is hard speaking out we help people by kind of taking a step back i think sort of saying right okay well look what you know what's what's going on what's happened let's look at those things let's look at your contract some people don't even have a contract Who's, mm. who's employing you, what is the sort of working culture like, what is the chain of command like, what could be the potential repercussions in you sharing this with somebody at work. I mean, we all know that, you know, we are all being encouraged to take a greater sense of collective accountability and, you know, largely people speak about that in a very positive way. But in terms of how that is actually happening on the ground, you know, people might not be in a situation where they might they might be in other industries where they've got a contract, they know who HR is, they've got a policy, they've got they've got they've got all these options on the table and they know how to navigate them. So so yeah, I think people do appreciate the support and also they appreciate support from people who know the industry and know what the sensitivities are and know what the possible repercussions might be, um, might feel like for that person. And we can kind of hold their hands through that process. And and that's not at all saying, you know, you have to report, you have to do it this way, you know, there's a there's a, there's a right and a wrong way of doing it. It's really just sort of working on that individual basis and going, okay, well, you know, how long are you going to be there for? What is the working culture like? You know, broadly, what do you want to happen out of this? And kind of breaking those steps down. Mm. And Justine's too modest to blow her own trumpet, but honestly, this service that she offers with the bullying advice service is incredible. I've worked at 
a number of charities. I worked at Mind Mental Health Charity. I've worked Corbett Relief, where we gave grants to all sorts of charities. I have never known of been a new service like this gets such incredible feedback. Like it has there's the, the range of people who are in junior through to really quite senior in very different positions, and they just say it has made such a huge difference. And it's just Seed says it's not necessarily she's not there to provide the answers. It's just so that you can feel heard and so that, you know, you can take a breath and have that emotional support. Um, so I really would encourage anyone, especially anyone thinking, oh, I'm not sure if this counts. I'm not sure if this service is really for me. It is for you. It is for you. Make an appointment. You really won't regret it. But I also want to mention something else, which is actually one of our pieces of work that we hope is a more strategic piece of work that's kind of going to live on as opposed to just the individual one-to-one support, we've got something called the the Whole Picture Toolkit for Mentally Healthy Productions. Don't know if you've come across that. No. And that's something we've been working on. Uh, we developed this up as part of the research we got first in 2019. And it's kind of, it's in order to put wellbeing on the agenda in a production environment. And it offers practical solutions to putting mental health and wellbeing at the heart of every production. It was designed in collaboration with the industry. I can't tell you how many stakeholders we had involved, and we still do with the ongoing evaluation. We have mental health, HR, legal, health and safety experts. And what it is, it's a it's a little website on its own, and it has guides, tips, and templates to help make productions healthier, healthier and fairer and more inclusive. And it's free. And I understand, we really do understand that in this day and age when you know, you've already got quite a lot of compliance to do and you don't want kind of all paperwork. Mm. So we've really tried to minimise that and just help you kind of zoom in and pick out the bits that you want. But what you were saying, Marcus, that thing at the beginning of that power imbalance and people feeling like, oh my God, I'm beside people. You hold so much more power than me. What comes back to, to us time and time again is people saying, it's all about setting the tone. You know, mm. it's those people at the top, if they, if they set the tone and they say, this is the kind of production this is the kind of workplace that we want it to be. And just reminder of that, you know, so we have a template, we, we, we talk about templates for holding a wellbeing memo, we have a wellbeing meeting, sorry, for the senior execs. We have a little template for a wellbeing memo. We have working with me, working well with me forms. And just these quite, quite small, they seem quite small, but these quite small things can really change the atmosphere and the way that people feel about coming to work. And, just checking in with their line manager. I think that's all really important. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of couple of questions um, to follow on from that. Uh, Justine, you 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 do the bullying advice, and it, and it's just advice, right? Because obviously you don't have obviously any due restriction over a production, and if something happens in a production, obviously they'll have their own sort of like HR protocol. Because it, it is, you know, it is a crazy setup the way production works because. Production is its own world. It's, 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 it exists for a certain amount of time, and then it and then it just evaporates, and then and then it, people move on. And within that time, those people that are working on that, they're held to the production and the schedule being king and queen, and everything is to serve that. So if there's not correct HR protocols in place, you know I don't know where someone would go. And in that situation, if they came to you, is it just advice that you offer because you can't, you don't have any authority over the production? Obviously, I don't know individually, but I'm on about like what what sort of help do you actually give? Well, as you say, every production is different, so it's really trying to get a read on that. It's trying to sort of you know each production is different. It's trying to sort of get a read on okay, well how how has this been set up? You know, everybody's got rights at work, 
So, okay, so if you've been employed for over two years, you have a lot of employment rights, which might not apply to freelancers, but everybody has got rights over dignity at work. You know, if you're being harassed, then that's a, that's a law. You know, it's the law of the UK that you have to be treated in a certain way and you have certain recourse. So it's trying to break down what, what exactly is happening here what is the nature of the production? What recourse have you got? And and what and, and what might you not have, sadly, in some cases? But it's really trying to sort of figure that out with somebody. Because as you say, sometimes there isn't HR. Sometimes there is HR, but it's you've never met anybody from HR. You don't know who they are. And going and reaching out to them would seem like quite a big step because they're in a corporate building, you know, miles away. You don't know who they are. That would feel like a, a bit of a risky thing to do. So it's, it's trying to sort of be, approach it really on an individual basis and, and, and try and understand that. And in terms of the sort of jurisdiction, I suppose, you know, there's back to if you if you were going to make a, a grievance or a, or a formal report that you needed to have an advocate for, or you need representation for. So there are, you know, there are other, other avenues out there and I would signpost to back to or potentially work alongside them. So yeah, without sort of wanting to be too broad, um, every situation is different. Cool. I think you kind of touched on the sorts of complaints that people typically have, but it'd be good to know what sort of help that you offer people outside of the uh, support line service, whether it be like uh, financial or sort of advice. Yeah, because we obviously know that um, the strikes this year have really impacted everyone. I've been to several events and it seems to be the only thing which people are talking about, not necessarily the strikes itself, but more the fact that like they're having people having to work in cafes or pick up like really regular jobs, which is it's not a start on that job, but if someone's trained for many, many years and has got years and years of experience in the thing which they kind of want and are trained to do, like they should be able to do that. So yeah, I'd, I'd be intrigued to know what sort of help you've been offering and, and also, um, yeah, if you could dig more into the, uh, the how the strikes have impacted. Okay, so, I mean, we're talking about the financial support that we offer um, and um, we were talking about the research that we've done into the financial resilience of industry workers. You know, we know that there has been this perfect storm of, you know, the pandemic and then there was a production boom, but then off the back of that, there's been, you know, production downturn and the really horrendous impact of the strikes. Um, when we've when we've surveyed people about their finances, we found that half the respondents to the survey told us that they got less than a thousand pounds in savings and half were not currently contributing to a pension. Um, and when you look at workers from underrepresented groups, they're much more likely to be impacted by these financial uncertainties and considerations. So, you know, we know that it's in a parlous state and we know that people are really vulnerable. Our response to that is twofold. One, we have grants, so we, we help people out with money. Um, we have a stopgap grant, which is up to 750 quid. So that's for people who are in urgent need, um, can help with household bills, rent, childcare. I mean, obviously, especially at the moment, we have to be very careful to respond to those in the most urgent need. So there, there is an application mm. process. There are questions to answer, but that money is available. And as I said earlier, we've seen an 800% increase. I think I've got some figures on how many people we've helped this financial year. So it's April, I think it's 1,400 wow. people have been supported with a, with a grant. We also have the Horace Ave grant, which is a specific grant of up to 500 pounds to help 
black and global majority people to access opportunities. So that's to that's just navigate specific barriers in career progression. So if somebody needed a piece of equipment or wanted to undertake training or needed money to attend a festival, something, you know, a discrete one-off opportunity, we'd help fund with that. So we, we, we hand out money, but we also want to help grow people's financial resilience. So on our website, we've curated a range of tools that we hope would be helpful to freelance in, uh, workers. So a benefits calculator, I think lots there's a, there's a lot of money and unclaimed benefits at the moment that the government are <laughs> on to. If your household earns under £40,000 a year, you might be eligible. It's worth checking out. There's budget planners because freelancers' cash flow is complicated. Money management tools, a range of things on there to, to, to help people become financially literate and hopefully safeguard themselves against these kind of vagaries of the industry and, and, and feel more confident about managing their money. So, yeah, we offer money. Um, I think we've already touched earlier on about the mental health support we offer people. Lucy can talk to you to that um, in a bit more detail. But we we also offer financial advice through our support line. Amazing. Thank you. The the support line is our main kind of that's our front door. That's the way to contact us. And that doesn't necessarily mean picking up the phone. Um you can do live chat, you can email us as well. And we know that almost nine in ten people in the film and TV industry have experienced a mental health problem in their lifetime. Nine out of ten. Nine nine out of ten. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's it works well, eighty seven percent, and that's compared with a national average of sixty five. So there is a really big discrepancy there. Yep. Um, and we know that a lot of the stress that people experience is connected with working life, sort of job insecurity, short term contracts, working conditions, working cultures. In our latest survey, we started asking the question: Do you consider the industry to be a mentally healthy place to work? Which I think is quite an interesting question because. You know, you can define that in different ways, but you just have like a gut reaction to what your answer is. And only 11% of people said, oh yeah, it's a mentally healthy place to work, which I think says quite a lot. That almost matches the one in 10, which kind yeah. of leaves out the, yeah. Yeah, the, the um, nine out of 10. That's the, these statistics mm. are from your Looking Glass, aren't they, report, which is on your website? Yes. So in the very first Looking Glass report, which came out in 2020, we asked about experiences um, in, a, in a lifetime. So we're trying to get like the first snapshot. Um, and then what we've done since then so that we can track change over time is asked about the experience that people have had in the last year. So how has your wellbeing been in the last year? Have you experienced harassment? What did you do? That sort of thing. So that we can track, try to track change over the last year. I'm not going to spout too many figures at you, but still a couple more sort of negative ones, but then come on to the positive. So 83% said that industry culture has a negative effect on their well-being. And 52% said that improved line management would improve well-being. And actually line management, such a boring phrase, isn't it? But it's something that comes, it just comes up time and time again in every aspect of our research, in every kind of event that I go to, whether it was with our industry partners, people, and I think it's so important for directors in particular who are going to be moving up in terms of seniority and are kind of praised and judged on their output and the, and the films and the content they create. But to be a really great director, you've got to have the people skills as well um, to make that team motivated and to work smoothly and for people, you know, to be an inclusive and respectful and healthy workplace. And the figure I do like to quote as well is that when we asked people if they sensed a change, if they thought that behaviours and conditions were improving, about 80% of people said, yeah, they felt that things were beginning to head in the right direction. 
So I don't want it to be all doom and gloom. I do think there is a feeling out there that, you know, we've got the ball rolling. Things could be a lot better, but they're heading in the right direction. What we can do in terms of our offer, so it's by the support line and you'll immediately get through to someone day or night and they're a listening ear and they can connect to you with a range of other services, as Justine mentioned. So that's a 24-hour support line? It is, yeah. Right. And that's... Um, that's actually quite unusual as well in in the world of kind of support, charity and support lines. Um, if you're going, if you're going to get a referral for counselling or for to to the bullying advice service or for financial or legal advice, you'll probably have to make an appointment. So you know you can't have that sort of any time, day or night. But it's pretty swift. In terms of supporting mental well-being, we've also got some really good digital self-help resources. There's a, a well-being check-in, for example, especially for freelancers, and that's just quite a, a neat way of just just going, oh, I'm really not feeling great. Let's just, okay. And it asks you a few simple questions. And then it suggests, it sort of puts together a little list of the resources that would be most useful for you. And there are tips on boosting your confidence. Those resources are on there on how to manage your well-being. Um, there's signposting to various types of training. And the other the other piece of one-to-one support I wanted to mention was we have something called a work of well-being service. And we mm-hmm. have these amazing advisors who will work with you over a three-month period so it's more like pace work actually, rather than just like a couple of appointments to address the barriers that are stopping you moving ahead with your career. And it it really is an amazing service because they'll talk to you about everything, you know, life is not kind of neatly compartmentalized. So you could be returning to work after a break due to illness or raising a family, being a carer for a loved one, and there's support and guidance. They're really, they're really good. Anything from like debts to housing to health worries, and they've got a really good range of what's out there in benefits in the social care sector and other support organisations that might be linked to other issues that aren't anything to do with film and TV, but they'll just kind of help you identify what's holding you back, help you think through the options and, and get back on track. They're kind of our, our hidden heroes, I'd say, in a way. Mm. Thank you for that. Amazing. Can, can I just quickly, you touched on the line producing, saying that's one of the most common things which people come up you about like uh, culture and things being often causing upset the line management yeah yeah can you can you talk to me a bit about that about what specific specifically that would entail it's two things isn't it it's one about having the skills the training to do it and then i think it's about having the experience of doing it of watching others do it and then you know you watch by learning you so i don't think enough people who get promoted probably automatically get the training they have and how to be a good line manager and even what that looks like you know mm. what your responsibilities are in terms of check-ins and you know making sure that that kind of oversight is happening and then i think there's a the lot this where covid comes in actually we see quite a lot in the in the production boom initially after covid we saw a lot of people being over promoted too quickly and then really struggling in positions where they were line managing for the first time because mm. they hadn't been on set so much. They hadn't been in those cultures and watched other people. You know, you learn them by, by watching someone and then you kind of, you know, it's people you look up to and people you learn from. And they hadn't had that same experience. And to be fair, you know, when I talk to people, sort of academics who work in the kind of business world and leadership and management training and that sort of thing, actually what they say is that what they call the soft skills and you know, this is a podcast i'm doing my air quotes here the soft skills <laughs> the people skills the social skills mm. are actually the hardest thing to teach you know you can teach people how to, to use a camera to have different techniques to think about scheduling think about you know audience needs research having those skills in managing people 
it takes time to learn them. It doesn't always come naturally to people, but I think the very first step is realizing, okay, I have this responsibility as well. This is part of my job. Mm. And again, I think that that means it's beholden to the people, the very top to the execs to be saying that really clearly, this is part of your job. And then quite openly like rewarding and recognizing people for doing that bit of their job well, not yeah. just did you get, you know, did you finish filming before you lost the light? Did you get, did you stick to schedule? Did you get stick to your budget? But, you know, you managed that teething really well. And I, I value that. But Lucy, yeah. I think um, Marcus and Oz touched on it before, didn't they? About, you know, because it is so fast paced and it is so yeah. competitive. And because every production, it really feels like there is only one shot. You know, there's only one shot to get this right. And I think in some other kinds of jobs or other lines of work sometimes you can say I'm not brilliant at that you know can somebody help me with it or I don't I'm not very comfortable confident about doing this for the first time or I can do that but I might need some more training and I I'm just sort of you know smiling when you were talking because I was just thinking you know in the, in this environment it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where people could say yeah I don't feel com- comfortable with this or I might need a bit more help to do that or could we just take a pause while I go off and find out how to do this or how to sort of enlist further support it's it's it is so competitive and people have to really talk themselves up you know to get jobs in the first place and say yeah yeah Mm. I'll be able to sort it out you know leave it to me I've done it a million times before and so everybody's under that pressure aren't they and it's it's very difficult to sort of step back and sort of give give people that time I think Marcus said before about what where is the sort of cultural memory bank around you know well we might not have done this great first time round. let's sit back reflect and work out how to do it better because everybody's guessed the four wins by then and gone off to do another job um so i think it is very hard to imagine how to put those structures in place yeah you're absolutely right so you know kind of it's it does feel like the the industry is sort of structurally weighted against doing that kind of thing you know how, how is it possible to 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 be a good manager to attract to value those skills if that is actually what is valued at the end of the day. And I guess you have to come back to those headline figures about how it's, you know, really bad for people's mental health, how you want to, you know, everybody wants to retain the best talent. And again, I know that this sounds like me sort of talking about quite sort of theoretical things when actually all production, you just want to, want people who are going to get the job done. But I, I guess that's why there's people like us out there kind of beating the drum. And I do think it's, I think things are slowly changing. And the fact, I think, thank God for Generation Z, who will put up with a lot less or possibly than yeah. those who've been around for a bit longer would have put up with. Well, and also it's that perspective shift, isn't it, about just trying to get the job done and make as brilliant a film or, or, or show as you possibly can. But actually, when people's mental health is suffering, you know, that can be across the board, that can be really, you know, it can cause a lot of issues for everybody involved um it can waste a lot of time and money or can cost a lot of time and money potentially so it's kind of having a bit of a reset around what's important and i think the the beauty of the toolkit is really saying right think about these things in advance you know where where does the stress and where do the risks occur how do we mitigate them and how do we have those conversations so you have transparency around that and you can address these things before they escalate and and it's too late and the damage is done. One of the things that I wanted to just pick up on was I've read the headline figures of the Looking Glass report and it's really, really eye-opening and it's really interesting and I'll come back to that later. But 
This research, obviously, it informs the film and TV charity and how to respond to things. But is there anything else going on with it? Are you working with any other institutions or organisations to actually, you know, formalise some of this stuff, you know, you know, in government? Because what you just said then, Justine, about, you know, productions trying to get that shot, you know, a, a show might pick up awards, a show might do really well, but at what price? And it's not the, it's not the price or the cost of, you know, what the bottom line budget is and, 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 and getting it on on time. It's actually the human well-being cost of a production. It's a really good question. And I guess the first thing to say is we're a charity. We're there to be mm. neutral and supportive and confidential. And so we aren't a lobby organisation because once we, I mean, people are already worried enough about taking the phone up to us already. You'd be amazed yeah. how difficult it is to persuade people. So that's not quite how we see our role. You know, we are there to be advocates for the individuals, but, and we work with other organisations that do the lobbying. So I guess a good example is this organisation called CSIRSA, acronym C-I-I-S-A, which you might have heard of. What stands for the Creative Industries Industry Standards Authority, um, and uh, it was initially just started by Times Up, uh, most broadcasters. So they've got a lot of people, a lot of support from film, TV, theatre, and the music sectors, and they will be looking to start and get themselves up and running next year in 2024. And they will be undertaking a range of things. They will be taking on a few investigations in terms of. Um, bullying and harassment, particularly mm. where people have fallen through the gaps and don't have recourse to HR for that sort of thing. But it won't just be about investigations. They will, if in, if asked by an employer, come in and help with mediation or assist with that investigation. They will do lobbying. So they will und- they're going to be lobbying on things like uh, non-disclosure agreements. They'll be lobbying the government and on... There's a few pieces of legislation that are going through second and third reading in the house at the moment about the period of time when you have to report something and sort of some of the technicalities around the law around harassment um they'll also be lobbying i think about just getting an official definition of bullying agreed because there isn't one enshrined in law so they'll mm. be doing that lobbying piece and then also i think have in their policy and best practice unit unit have adva- have a, examples of what best practice looks like so that is a new body that will be doing some of those things as um, they're still working, but kind of behind the scenes to set it all up, and it's not really my place to talk about all the ins and outs of them. But we do work very closely with them. And uh, another thing to mention, again, this isn't you know, it's not it's not the be all and end all, but it's all these little nudges here and there that make a difference. So BAFTA a while ago introduced the diversity requirements, so any show or film that wanted to be entered for BAFTA had to have certain requirements, and actually these. That eligibility criteria, I believe, was adopted by the Oscars as well. And that, again, it's not perfect, but that has changed how people think about that as an impact on the way that, at least, you know, the, the way that people crew up. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a word for this, isn't there, that they used on, I think Viola Davis used the word on on her Oscar speech about. Oh, really? Yeah, about, about, about uh, the, I've forgotten what it's called, but it's that what you're talking about, that it's forced on a production to, to, to make sure that they hit diversity standards. And as of, this, I believe it's this year's awards, they will be asking questions about bullying and harassment policies as well. So again, it's just, it's not, you know, it's not as if they have huge resources to go out and police everything, but they will be saying, do you have a bullying and harassment policy? Have you made sure that everybody in your organisation knows about it? Is it open to everybody who works for you? And again, you know, these are just incentives. That there's no, there's no sort of silver bullet to solve it all. 
Justine, is there anything else you can think of that? No, I, 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 I mean, obviously we work back to and they are, you know, they lobby very hard on behalf mm. of their members. I, th- I think Lucy's right in that um, there's no magic wand. It's about it's about figuring out where these gaps are, where the sort of where the gaps are that people fall through, and and everybody keeping on talking about how to how to close these gaps down or how to minimise them, and how to provide support for people who are who are experiencing them. It's it's not it's it's not one single thing. It's about encouraging the conversation where everybody's doing doing what they can um, and doing what's most relevant, you know, to their, their their own particular responsibility. So, you know, if you're making your own film, there's a lot of things that you can do as an individual to, to try and sort of address some of these issues. And I think you touched on the anti-racism work that you do. I think there's a, there's a really good think piece on your website from uh, Sasha Salmon. Yeah, we've seen that you've kind of like ring-fenced some of your funding for marginalised communities. So I think it'll be interesting to talk a little bit more about that. Because I think, as you were saying, all of, the, all of the issues around like power imbalances and things on set and the lack of diversity in the industry is a whole thing. And because these standards are coming in, they're having to put lots of people of colour in trainee roles, which <laughs> which then means like there's not just the power imbalance thing, but also all of the microaggressions and all of these sorts of things kind of come up quite readily. And then also because that there's not much of a HR department or grievance procedure in place when incidences of racism or or um, other issues come up. Sometimes people aren't believed or the people who are in charge of dealing with it don't have the capacity to understand it properly. And that's something in addition to their job, which if they're not well trained or like they've been elevated quickly, that's something they might not have the capacity to deal with and it's more stress. So yeah, I'm intrigued to, to kind of hear what you've what things you've kind of you do to help on on that front and why you felt it was important to uh, ring fence the money especially for that there's a question in uh, there somewhere there's a question there. <laughs> um so i can talk so we do we do ring fence money for our grants um so 30 percent of our grants go to people from uh, black and global majority backgrounds and actually i think we actually we 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 go over that you know we, we don't struggle to achieve that we're really proud of our record on that um, we've got a new program that will be launching soon, um, which has got a significant amount of money behind it to do strategic work addressing the sort of systemic racism in the industry. So you have to watch this space for that one. It's called our Impact Partnership Program. And then to watching what you said about people not having the skills and the capacity, yeah, we're really aware of that. In fact, we actually particularly asked a question in the last survey that we hadn't asked before, which was, are you responsible for the well-being of other people in your role? And if those people who said yes, about a third of them said they'd had something brought to them in the last year. A third of them. And then we said, if, if you'd had something brought to you, did you feel like you had the skills and experience to deal with that? And about half of them said no. And then we said, well, we know what would help with that. And about two thirds of them said some training. Mm. And I guess this is a good example of what our new chief exec calls, you know, you find the right metric and the, the advocacy, the campaigning almost happens by itself. Like that's, that's such an obvious problem and such you know training isn't everything but it is something that you can do i think it would be good to give a shout out to biffa here because they've got some training that they do which is like a follow-on from the screen spills e-module um and that helps on bullying and harassment and that they do a bit in that um where they work in groups and they get people to kind of role play what it's like to be the person who is the target who is the perpetrator and then who is the bystander and I believe that that training is really quite effective and people have come away from that. I've heard really good things about that. I think they'll be running the next programme soon. And although it is 
subsidized by screen skills so you can pay a small fee, but they don't want the money to be a barrier to access. So um, there should be ways for people to attend that if they possibly can. But you're right. I mean, I I wish I had the answer to it. People don't have the capacity. They don't don't know what to do, as you said, and Justin said, it's, you know, it's a brief period of time. You're under huge amounts of pressure. And I think with, especially with things like racism and or sexual harassment, things that people, we are so worried about doing the wrong thing that mm. it's kind of when you're brought something like that it's brought to you and you really feel like oh my god this is i don't know what to do like human nature is almost to like do nothing just yeah. in case you do the wrong thing and then particularly if you're in a production environment and actually think if i can just hang on till next tuesday it'll be someone else's problem mm. Mm. So unless you've got those that sort of those skills kind of ready to hand but you've also you're working in an environment where it's being made like Justine said, the toolkit kind of really transparent. Those conversations have already been had right at the top. So you know where to go rather than having to do quite a lot of work to kind of work out where you should go, who you should talk to, what the right process is. Um, it can be very difficult. Yeah. yeah. I think that the, the training that you've got, um, that you're talking about available for like how freelancing works and, you know, the freelance cash flow, because no one teaches you that stuff. You know, I, I teach one day a week at one of the unis in Manchester, the film schools, and, you know, my students who are, you know, in their early 20s will be, year threes will be leaving into the world and they've got to kind of like get a grasp on how to navigate, you know, how do you kind of hustle having multiple revenue streams so that if one goes, you, you know, you can get another one. How do you network so that you can continually form like alliances with people who will give you repeat business? I don't think this stuff is taught. I think the craft is taught, but that stuff is not taught, the business side of it. So it's it's great that you've got that resource there, and I encourage our listeners who want to know more about that to to seek that out on the film and uh, TV charity website. I a hundred percent agree with you, Oz. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you you know, there's some absolutely brilliant production courses out there, and you know, you might come out and be a world class, you know, sound engineer or editor, but you know, will you have covered you know the basics around? How important is it to be across your tax? You know, how stressful is it going to be if you haven't got a good accountant? You know, how do you infiltrate these um, really rich peer support networks, you know, and how that, how important that might be to you over your career? These, these things are, um, people learn them as they're going along, but I think there's a massive scope there for, for, for learning them earlier, for sure. Brilliant. Uh, the, the, the word I was talking about before, Lucy, Viola Davis has mentioned it, but it's actually Frances McDormand has mentioned it. It's called Inclusion Rider, and that's what she... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, okay. that she uses. Uh, but yeah. Oh, yeah, they've got like high-level talent sometimes like putting it in their contract yes. to make sure that yeah. certain right. amount okay. of the crew is inclusive. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that was a thing when Steve McQueen did Small Axe. He was trying to crew up with... with like lots of black British people on the crew and you're just like, it's just not possible. <laughs> There's not enough that exists here. But as I think, as you kind of said, things are getting better from what I'm seeing. The way I kind of see all these things when people get quite annoyed about the state of things is that this is the first time it's being acknowledged in this way um, and it's all gonna take time. And all of the people that we kind of see when you've got a bunch of trainees on set who are people of color in 10, 20 years, they're all gonna be HIVs and it will then take care of itself but it's a case of like not losing the energy for it at the moment um yeah because it, it's like a continuous thing you can't rest on your laurels and also and also just to add to that as well i noticed on the looking glass report that you'd broken it down by region as well and as a northerner i have to say that 
you know, that the, there is a disparity between London and the rest of the country, especially up north. Um, and it's good that you've kind of used your data to break that down. Are you doing another iteration this year of the Looking Glass report? So the next one is next year. So it'll be out, um, I don't, I'm not exactly sure which month, but it's usually around June. Right. 2024. Okay. Um, and then it takes us quite a while to crunch the data because it's a very rich data set, but know those demographics where people live and all sorts of other things are really important to us. Um, it's a very, very challenging industry to work in for every single person, no matter like what your background is financially or otherwise. And um, yeah, I think just knowing about these sorts of resources can, it might inspire someone to to pick up the phone or, or to do a bit of research and yeah, hopefully it'll, it can help. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank to you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. This brings us to our like, final bit, which is which is called Nugget of the Week. And we always ask ask our guests uh, about, and you know what, it's really cool because the other day I was trying to find a nugget someone had said and I actually went onto the show notes and actually found it. I think it was Amy O'Hara's, who's a Film 4 exec. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really um, it's really good to have the bank of these. I think, I think one day Marcus will release it as a book, Everybody's Nuggets of the Week. Um, (laughs) but yeah we want to just ask you both because we both consume a lot of content and you know we're always inspired and you know staying positive and keeping momentum going and energy so I want to ask you both do you have a nugget of the week well I watched a film at the weekend it's not a very recent film actually it's called Philomena Steve Coogan and Judy Dench yes Um, and it was as good as I had hoped it would be and so it's about uh, an Irish woman you had to give up her baby and then trust finding you know, 50 years later and the nuns have behaved terribly at the conference and, and lied to her. And, and at the end, when sort of they've just insurmountable case of, you know, this injustice that's been done to her and the, her son, baby that she had to give up. And then she says, I have got one thing to you. And she turns to the nun who's behind it all. And she just turns to her and she says, I forgive you because I don't want to remain angry. That is such a big grown up thing to be able to do, you know, in the face of someone who wasn't even asking for forgiveness. He was completely convinced in how right they are. But to be able to say, because I don't want to feel like this anymore, I'm going to do this incredibly generous thing. And it made me think about some of my, the things that we hold on to and the ways we can let go of them. That's great. The power of cinema. You're right though, Philomena is a, like when I watched it, I was really surprised. I was like, this is really good. And I actually then went out and bought it. Because I was like, yeah, yeah, because I just thought it's really, really good. But when I saw, I saw it for years on the DVD, I'm, like, I'm not interested in that because of the cover. Yeah, exactly. It's taken me ages to get around yeah, yeah, to watching yeah. it. But there's such class acts as well. It's so well written and the acting is brilliant. Did, did you have anything, Justine? Or? Uh, mine sort of, mine goes a little bit hand in hand with Lucy's in a way. I had a really, really difficult conversation with somebody last week that I was absolutely dreading and sort of losing sleep over in the run up to it. I really didn't want to have it. It was a hard conversation in lots and lots of ways. And um, having had it, I cannot, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all. It was a really difficult conversation. It's complicated. But having had it, I feel mm. so much better. And I don't know if the conversation is going to lead to what I wanted it to lead to. I've no idea. But I had the conversation. I made myself have the conversation. It was tr- tricky to have. But the thing is, is that I feel so much better afterwards. Mm. Just the fact of actually show, showing up and having it 
that I decided um, this sort of idea around hard things and, you know, letting go, like Lucy said, is a, is a hard thing to do. So it's trying to sort of identify, anyway, I'm on a roll with the hard things to do. Mm. And I thought, I'm going to just get a book and write hard stuff. I was sort of thinking about January and, you know, sort of new starts and stuff. I thought I might just write some hard things in. Might not, you know, my hard things would be different from other people's, but I might just acknowledge that they're hard, even if other people would find them really easy, even if it's just like, I don't know, paying your tax or something. Some people might find that really easy. I find it really difficult. I'm going to put them yeah. in a book of hard things and I'm going to tick them off. And um, That is really cool. That's what that's what I'm thinking. It's just, I, I started reading then about the science of hard things and, you know, why it's important to sort of, you know, talk yourself through it, sort of coach yourself through it. But I think it's really important to kind of embrace it and go, this might not be hard for everybody, but it's hard for me. And if I see it through, it's not whether I did it or not. It's not the success. It's just that I saw that process through and I'm going to, and I'm going to recognize that in some way. Yeah. Because if you've got multiple hard things, I guess if you if they're inside your head, they're just like one big clump of a big hard thing. But actually writing it out, it gets it out, doesn't it? Well, also, I think if you feel like you're somebody who's not doing the hard thing, then you start to feel like a bit of a failure. And then yeah. that's when all the negative self-talk about being a loser mm. and why can't, it's not that hard. Just get on with mm. it. That's when all that sort of sets in. So I thought, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna have a book called Tricky Things or Tough Things, and I'm just gonna sort of acknowledge that you know that they are potentially worth doing, and they make you feel better actually, and they're as bad as you think they're gonna be. Great. Mine this week is is my YouTube video of the week. Basically, there's a Q and A Q&A with David Fincher. Michael Fassbender and curated by Ryan Johnson, who's the writer director of the Glass Onion films um, and Looper and things. Um, and yeah, it's 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 really good because it's with a director, high level director interviewing another high level director, and it kind of breaks down the craft of that and very practical questions in there based on what directors want to know. So I found that really really useful. So I recommend checking that out. Wicked. And my one is I went to watch Killers of a Flower Moon the other day from Martin Scorsese and oh yeah it, I'm not going to do any spoilers you said Martin Scorsese but in the notes there you've put Scorzilla yeah <laughs> uh, um, yeah I think that uh, it's such a good film and like what you were saying Lucy about the ending of Philomena being really powerful but small it was kind of similar to that but I won't go into it and I really really enjoyed it uh, and I sat there for three and a half hours want to give a negative shout out to Audience Cinema in Manchester Printworks because there was a green light from the fire exit on the bottom left of the screen that took up about 20% of the screen and they wouldn't do anything about it. Oh no! For three and a half hours, so many people went and complained and said, can't do anything, can't do anything. It's like, well, we're here for three and a half hours. But anyway. If Martin Scorsese knew. That's what, you know what, I was going to go and give a massive like rant about (laughs) about that, but then I thought they're going to think you're off your head. You're some old bloke, try shit. So I didn't. (laughs) But that's it. Good job. And um, I guess just beyond that, the the final thing we'd like to ask you is just where can we find the film and TV charity? Where's the best place on socials to, like, do you have an Instagram? Do you have a Twitter? We've got it all. um, Got it all. I got it all on our website. (laughs) It it, it links to all of those things. But yeah, we've got Twitter. We've got we've got Instagram. I'm not sure how much TikTok we do, but yeah, all our socials are all alive and well. Um, and and if you sign up to the website and become a subscriber, you will get um, 
you'll get all our sort of latest news and our newsletter series as well. Um, and LinkedIn, actually, we'd put our monthly newsletter on LinkedIn as well. So it's worth it's worth following us on LinkedIn. Yeah, our LinkedIn audience actually is really growing. It's interesting. It's one of the areas where uh, we seem to be picking up a lot of audience. And actually, can I just say one more thing? Sorry, mm. I just feel like it would be remiss of us to say we are a charity and we do rely on donations, however big or small. And yes. I know it's a tough time, tough time for everyone. But we kind of we get just some lovely messages from people saying that you know you helped me out when I was at a difficult time, and I just want to give a little bit back. So mm. even if it's just a fiver, or if you can encourage your you can encourage your employer that sort of sending out Christmas cards, make a donation. There's all sorts of suggestions on our website. And they'll be um, later this week, I believe on Thursday, mm. there'll be our winter appeal film coming out with a few famous faces. Oh, lovely. Right. So if there's any big dogs listening to this, then you know. Yes. Great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, throw your do- donations in and pay it forward. All the above the line is. Yeah, yeah exactly. There should maybe be like going forward, like like a, an, an above the line tax for film and TV charities. So everyone that's on the <laughs> above the line be. money. They have to give a really tiny percentage, and if it all accumulates from the industry, it'll be good. Because support everyone else below the line. Yeah, that would be a amazing. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you cool. once again. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that concludes the episode. Next week, we're going to be joined by another exciting guest as ever. So follow socials to find out who we'll be having on. And if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the directors take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large. And we'll do our best to tell you. We want to ship this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the directors take podcast. And also on Twitter, which is at directors take. And please continue to leave in us a review It's helping us keep sharing, keep talking about it. It does help us because we still are early. So important. And I think that's it. So until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith.